We're going to move into our time of study now. We are in the book of Jude, the short little letter um, that Jude wrote. And um, I think of all the letters in the New Testament, um, there's just an incredible level of depth uh, in Jude. Um, Listening to some of the commentaries, they've talked about the... uh, the Acts of the Apostles really being the introduction to the church, the beginning of church, and the letter to Jude really kind of ties off the whole of the the New Testament. Of course, Revelation follows chronologically, um, but Jude deals with the Acts of the Apostates. So the Acts of the Apostles at the one end, and then you've got the Acts of the Apostates at the other, and looking at the way the world is going, and uh, particularly that which is going on within the church. Um, so Jude is not telling us anything probably we don't already know, but there's some warnings here that we need to pay attention to. So let's have a look at uh, Jude's letter again. So what I'd like to do is just read through again um, from the Living Bible Paraphrase. I think it just helps to kind of get a feel of the, the kind of the personal late nature of this letter. So we'll do this and then we'll, we'll go back into the, the verse by verse study. So from Jude a servant of Jesus Christ and a brother of James. To Christians everywhere, beloved of God and chosen by him, may you be given more and more of God's kindness, peace and love. Dearly loved friends, I've been planning to write you some thoughts about the salvation God has given us, but now I find I must write of something else instead, urging you to stoutly defend the truth that God gave once for all, to his people to keep without change throughout the years. I say this because some godless teachers have wormed their way in among you, saying that after we become Christians, we can do just as we like without fear of God's punishment. The fate of such people was written long ago, for they have turned against our only master and Lord, Jesus Christ. My answer to them is, remember this fact, which you know already, that the Lord saved a whole nation of people out of the land of Egypt and then killed every one of them who did not trust and obey him. And I remind you of those angels who were once pure and holy but turned to a life of sin. Now God has them chained up in prisons of darkness waiting for the judgment day. And don't forget the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah and their neighboring towns, all full of lust and every kind Uh, including the lust of men for other men. Those cities were destroyed by fire and continue to be a warning to us that there is a hell in which sinners are punished. Yet these false teachers carelessly go right on living their evil, immoral lives, degrading their bodies and laughing at those in authority over them, even scoffing at the glorious ones. Yet Michael, one of the mightiest of the angels, when he was arguing with Satan about Moses' body, did not dare to accuse even Satan or jeer at him, but simply said, the Lord rebuke you. But these men mock and curse at anything they do not understand, and like animals they do whatever they feel like, thereby ruining their souls. Woe upon them, for they follow the example of Cain, who killed his brother, and like Balaam, who would do anything for money, and like Korah, they have disobeyed God and will die under his curse. When these men join you, at the love feast of the church, there are evil smears among you, laughing and carrying on, gorging and stuffing themselves without a thought for others. They are like clouds blowing over dry land without giving rain, promising much but producing nothing. They are like fruit trees without any fruit at picking time. They are not only dead but doubly dead, 
for they have been pulled out, roots and all, to be burned. All they leave behind them is shame and disgrace, like the dirty foam left along the beach by the wild waves. They wander around looking as bright as stars, but ahead of them is the everlasting gloom and darkness that God has prepared for them. Enoch, who lived seven generations after Adam, knew about these men and said this about them. See, the Lord is coming with millions of his holy ones. He will bring the people of the world before him in judgment to receive just punishment and to prove the terrible things they have done in rebellion against God, revealing all they have said against him. These men are constant gripers, never satisfied doing whatever evil they feel like. They are loudmouth show-offs, and when they show respect for others, it is only to get something for them in return. Dear friends, remember what the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ told you, that in the last times there would come these scoffers, whose whole purpose in life is to enjoy themselves in every evil way imaginable. They stir up arguments. They love the evil things of the world. They do not have the Holy Spirit living in them. But you, dear friends, must build up your lives ever more strongly upon the foundation of our holy faith, learning to pray in the power and strength of the Holy Spirit. Stay always within the boundaries where God's love can reach and bless you. Wait patiently for the eternal life that our Lord Jesus Christ in his mercy is going to give you. Try to keep those who argue against you so try to help those who argue against you. Be merciful to those who doubt. Save some by snatching them as from the very flames of hell itself. As others, as for others, help them to find the Lord by being kind to them. Be careful that you yourselves aren't pulled along into their sins. Hate every trace of their sin while being merciful to them as sinners. And now all glory to him who alone is God who saves us through Jesus Christ our Lord. Yes, splendor and majesty, all power and authority are his from the beginning. They are his and they shall evermore be. And he is able to keep you from slipping and from falling away and to bring you sinless and perfect into his glorious presence with mighty shouts of everlasting joy. Amen. So that's just a, a paraphrase, a summary of the letter. I think you just get the feel then that kind of the, the in, uh, I suppose the heart of Jude in writing this. You know, he's writing it to believers like you and I, warning them that there are people in the so-called church that would happily lead us away. That really don't care for God; they care for themselves, uh, and they will encourage us to to abandon Scripture uh, and then go after whatever our hearts may desire. Of course, we see a lot of that going on. Prominent evangelicals over recent years, have made all sorts of shocking statements uh, about what they think is acceptable to God uh, and trying to undermine the clear teaching of Scripture, saying, well, that doesn't really apply, or that was then, or that was in the Old Testament. It doesn't mean that today, and we can live like this, or we can do this, and this particular practice is okay, and so on and so on. So, Jews' warning. It's very simple. Evil people have crept into the church unnoticed. Of course, that's what Jesus said in Matthew 13 was going to happen, the parable of the wheat and the tares. And they teach you that you can live as you like without fear of consequence because you are saved. You know, and, and this is such a dangerous thing because the way we live does matter. This is the argument that, that Jude is making. You know, it doesn't just have an impact now. It does matter now, but it also has a real effect in the light of eternity and particularly through the millennial reign of Christ and the roles and responsibilities that will be given to those in the church. And Jude, to 
underlying the point that he's making in the first part of this letter is going to give us three object lessons from the Old Testament. Now, the first of these we looked at last week. But really, what he's warning us is quite simply this, that there's a danger that we could be led astray or deceived by these apostates. So we need to be aware that we are not immune to the possibility of deception. We're not immune to the influences of those who would be um, spouting all sorts of things on Christian radio or Christian TV or in the media or when we see people on TV or whatever. You know, we need to be so aware that a lot of the things that are, are said by people seemingly in positions of authority may not be in accord with scripture. And we should, we'll expect to see more and more of that as the days roll on, as we get closer to not only the Lord calling us home, but the mystery of iniquity that Paul spoke of being fully unveiled in this world. And of course, the danger also is there of us actually becoming apostate ourselves and walking away from the things of God, getting to the point that we love the things of the world more than the things of God. It's turning away effectively from the grace of God. And if you remember last week, we went through a list of people through Scripture, Old and New Testament, that had started really well, had great opportunities of walking with God and serving God, knowing his blessing, knowing his grace but then turned away from those things and God destroyed them. I think one of the, the striking ones that I highlighted this last week is the sons of Aaron, Nadab and Abihu. These two sons were clothed, they were appointed and anointed to be priests over the nation of Israel. Aaron had four sons, but these two sons in particular had the opportunity of going up Mount Sinai and seeing the presence of God. And then they blow it. They disregard God's clear instruction regarding the sacrifices and the offerings and as a result of this God destroys them you know so there's a number of examples that we can look at and on one hand it's very easy to say well you know for the worldly people people who are not really saved you know I can understand that God will will judge them but then the danger is that we lull ourselves into this kind of false sense of security saying well because we're saved it really doesn't matter for us we're okay you know God will forgive us Well, we need to be very careful. This is the lesson that Jude is trying to teach us, that we can't just have that mindset that it doesn't matter because it truly does. And as we looked at last week, Paul makes this statement uh, in 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 9, verse 27. He says, but I uh, keep under my body and bring it into subjection, lest that by any means, when I have preached to others, I myself should be a castaway. Paul also says this, wherefore let him thinks that he stands, take heed lest he fall. Some really stark warnings Paul gives to the Corinthian Christians. But notice that word there, cast away. The word in the the Greek is uh, adikamos, uh, and it really just means rejected, not standing the test, not approved. Now, we looked at this last time and we talked about the reality that if we are saved, if we have put our faith and trust in Jesus Christ, salvation is secured. And there are so many scriptures that make that abundantly clear. Yet, there is the possibility of losing the blessings, losing in a sense that privilege we have of walking in and knowing the grace of God. Second Peter 110 says, wherefore, the rather brethren, give diligence to make your calling and election sure. Now, Jude starts his letter by saying that we've been called. 
But Peter says, but be careful, make sure that that calling is genuine, that you really are called and that you are the ones that God has chosen. He says, for if you so do these things, you shall, you shall never fall. In effect, Peter is saying, you remember that Peter, we talked last time, this disciple uh, that Jesus had called from being a fisherman on the shores of Galilee after he'd passed the time of his education. This rabbi comes along and says, I want you to be my pupil, my disciple. And Peter doesn't miss that. He's effectively saying, you know, that look, this is what Peter's saying to believers. You've been given a second chance. You've been, you've been called by Jesus himself. Don't blow your inheritance like the prodigal son, like he saw, by chasing after things to satisfy you merely on earth and not striving to take hold of all that you can have in Christ. And this is the warning. Now, I read this a few weeks ago. We were going through uh, John's second letter. But I'm going to read this again. This is from Chuck Misler's book, The Kingdom, Power and Glory. And he says this, What we do after we have been born again affects our role, position, place and authority in the coming millennial kingdom. This kingdom is not heaven, but a literal physical kingdom on earth where Jesus will reign for a thousand years. We acknowledge this kingdom. I mean, we pray thy kingdom come, is, you know, but we don't know the criteria required to inherit it. The truth that not only our rewards, but our place of responsibility in that kingdom is being determined now. Thus, there is an urgent need for a renewed recognition of our personal accountability. We must learn to be partakers of Christ's life. These are called overcomers or faithful ones in scripture. Now, overcoming means victory over hostile powers. Jesus is the real overcomer. The only way we become an overcomer is by yielding ourselves to him. Overcomers are not perfect. They are just ones who make the right choices to go God's way. David, of course, is an example. All believers will enter the kingdom, but only overcomers will inherit that kingdom. Overcomers or the faithful ones will rule and reign there. The overtaken will simply dwell there. Did you see the contrast and what is potentially uh, here to lose if we don't walk and maintain that relationship with the Lord? The deciding factor, of course, is how we live our lives here. So as John said in Second John, look to yourselves that we lose not those things which we have wrought, but that we receive a full reward. Now, again, let me highlight the issue here is one of reward, of inheritance. It's not of salvation. Again, let me stress very clearly, I do not believe from Scripture that you can lose your salvation. But clearly there is a warning here that's very stark and it says it really does matter how you live. You can't live as a nominal Christian, as a carnal Christian, as a complacent Christian. If you have been born again, your life should reflect the change that has taken place positionally. So our position has changed. God looks at us now clothed in the righteousness of Christ. But our life should reflect that positional change in our actual day to day lives. Now, Jude gives this first example that God had destroyed the Israelites who failed to trust him and entered the promised land. Of course, instead, that nation waited 38 years until the entire generation had died out. Now, once again, the nation had been delivered from the bondage and the slavery in Egypt. That really speaks of the life of sin. And they've been delivered from that. They'd come through the waters of the Red Sea. Uh, effectively baptism is the, that was, Paul makes that point it's analogous to that 
And yet, even after knowing all of that, being delivered, seeing God work in an incredible way, they acted out of disobedience. They lacked faith. They didn't trust God. And as a result, God took them out of the game. And there's many warnings in scripture that we find to that effect. Even in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, the passage of scripture that speaks of the communion of Paul's uh, revelation that God showed him what had taken place in the upper room. Um, Paul goes on to warn there that there were many sick and many had died in the congregation simply because they had not lived lives worthy of the calling. They hadn't understood the importance of the communion. They treated it as a common thing, effectively. God is not mocked. So we're going to build on this now. And let's just read verse 5 again. This is what we kind of finished with last week. I will therefore, Jude says, put you in remembrance. This is Jude's point here. I want you to think, I want you to remember. Though you once knew this, How that the Lord, having saved the people out of the land of Egypt, he saved them, notice, after destroyed them that believed not. They never lost that liberty they now had, but God took them out. God destroyed them. They never got to enjoy the promised land, the inheritance. And the, the frustrating thing was they were so close. They were days away. They were right at Kadesh Barnea on the border, getting ready to cross. And of course, you know the account that they send the 12 spies in. Joshua and Caleb bring back that good report. But the rest of them bring back an evil report. And they say, oh, there's giants in the land and there's no way we can overcome them. You know, all the cities are walled. And, you know, of course, what they were facing was no greater a challenge than what they'd come through with the Egyptians and having to be see God's hand on, on the land of Egypt with the plagues and so on, bringing them out. And the miracles they'd already seen in the wilderness uh, to this point. But they, they doubted. They did, they denied that God would give them the victory. And so God doesn't allow them to enter into this inheritance. But then we build on this example. And the second example that Jude gives us is what we read in verse 6. And Jude says this, And the angels, which kept not their first estate, but left their own habitation, Has he reserved in everlasting chains under darkness unto the judgment of the great day? So after giving the example of Israel, again, of whom that Egypt generation didn't enter the promised land because of unbelief and, of course, God destroyed in the wilderness. And now before going on and in verse seven, giving us the example of Sodom and Gomorrah, both of those things, the situation with Egypt and the wilderness, we understand for Israel. We understand about Sodom and Gomorrah. But in between that, of course, God judged Sodom and Gomorrah. Jude now gives this example of the angels which kept not their first estate. And he gives it as further evidence that God will judge and disinherit those that turn from his statues. Now, Jude writes as if this situation was well known, because he places it amongst two other things that clearly were well understood. And he throws this in there. And this is one of the things, in a sense, we're grateful to Job for, because clearly this is something that the early church would have had some understanding of. Otherwise, Jude would have given a greater explanation. He puts it in there as something they knew and they would have understood. Notice what he said at the beginning. I want to put you in remembrance. I want to remind you of this stuff that you already know. Well, For us, this is a challenge because this opens up lots of questions about who these angels are. What does it mean by saying that they kept not their first estate? What does it mean by saying they left their own habitation? And then something seriously happened because 
these particular group, this particular group of angels, we're told that God has reserved in everlasting chains under darkness unto, or up until, we'll look at that in a while, the judgment of the great day. So let's uh, look at this in a little bit more detail. Well, the Bible makes it clear that some angels have rebelled against God. No question about that from scripture. In Matthew 25, when Jesus is giving the details of the sheep and goat judgments that are yet to come, uh, he says in Matthew 25, verse 41, Then shall he say unto them that are on the left hand, Depart from me, you cursed, into everlasting fire, prepared for the devil and his angels. So very clearly, there are a number of angels who sided with and have rebelled against God and joined with the devil. So it gives us three questions that we need to try and answer. Firstly, why did some angels rebel against God? Now, this really is part of the, the crux of what Jews are trying to get across here. You know, these are angels who had been in the presence of God. They'd seen everything in heaven, and yet they rebel. So, don't this is what paul says again you take him that thinks he stands take heed lest he fall so just because you think well i'm saved i'm I'm okay i don't need to worry i can live and god's not going to bring judgment upon me if i do this if i looked with lust or if i have an attitude of bitterness toward other people or if i you know disregard the reading of god's word and if i choose not to pray it doesn't matter you know i'm saved anyway no jude's saying no it does matter how you live and this is the example. So why did some angels who knew all of those things about God, why did they rebel? But another question we should ask is, when did they rebel? And then what is the diff what is different about Jude's angels, the ones he's referring to here, that they are singled out for this specific divine punishment? Clearly, it's not all of the fallen angels that Jude is speaking about, but it's a particular group that clearly crossed a big line. And because of that, God then brings judgment upon them. Well, to try and answer some questions, we get an insight if we go back into the Old Testament into the book of Job. In Job chapter 38, as part of the questions that God throws to Job at the end after Job's tried to answer the conundrums and the reasons for his own personal challenges, uh, God then gives him this quiz and says, Where was thou when I laid the foundations of the earth? Declare if thou hast understanding. Who has laid the measures thereof, if thou knowest? Who has stretched the line upon it? Whereupon are the foundations thereof fastened? Or who laid the cornerstone thereof? All questions, of course, that Job could not answer. But then we get this statement from God. When the morning stars sang together and all the sons of God shouted for joy. Now, that expression we have, the sons of God, is used directly of a creation of God. So something that God created directly. Uh, we find it's used uh, as an expression of Adam. We find it's used of those who are born again in First John uh, chapter 3, um, behold what manner of love the Father has poured upon us that we should be called the sons of God because now as believers we're a direct creation of God. In the context that here it is in Job, both the beginning of the book of Job and here it's very clearly speaking of the angels. In fact at the beginning of the book of Job it's even clearer because we're told that the sons of God came and presented themselves before God. So it's very clearly in the context, and Satan is among them, he comes and, and presents himself too. So this is speaking of angels. Now, notice what it says. 
In the work of creation, as God is creating the earth, laying the foundations, this is on day one of creation, effectively, the morning stars sang together and all the sons of God shouted for joy. Now, Genesis 1-1 is very clear in the, 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 the pattern of when God created and the foundations were laid. At that point, all the angels shouted for joy. It doesn't say that some of the angels or all the righteous or the good angels. It says all the angels. So by implication, this has to include at that point, Lucifer. Now, this goes against some of the teaching that's been put out over the years and some um, theories that have been presented. Uh, most of the theories have no scriptural basis. They're just simply theories about when did God create the angels? When did Satan fall? All these kind of questions. When did the angels rebel? But this clearly implies that in the beginning, as God is creating everything, uh, and notice God declares it all good initially. Well, how can God declare everything good if you have all these fallen angels and Satan himself running around? It wouldn't, you can't class that necessarily as good. So at the beginning, all the sons of God shouted for joy. Okay, so he, Satan and his angels must therefore have rebelled sometime after creation itself after that initial period of creation now we get a further confirmation of this in ezekiel 28 now it's a passage passage that speaks of um, satan or lucifer as he was originally known and this passage speaks of him and says thou sealest up the sun full of wisdom and perfect in beauty this is speaking of the one we call Satan or the devil, but originally he was a perfect, wonderful angel of the, the cherubim um, class of angels. It says, Thou hast been in Eden, the garden of God. Well, there is only and has only ever been one Eden. That There's not any other Eden ever referred to in Scripture other than that which we have recorded for us in the book of Genesis. God created the garden of Eden before he created man because god then places man in the god that he had past tense already created so god in the work of creation creates this garden and we're told that satan or lucifer as he was then was in eden there's just an interesting point notice though what else we're told here every precious stone was thy covering the sardis the topaz and the diamond the beryl the onyx the jasper sapphire the emerald and the carbuncle the gold the workmanship of thy tablets and of thy pipes was prepared in thee in the day that thou was created. This leads many to the assumption that Lucifer actually had some sort of musical instruments built into his very being and that he was more than likely responsible and in charge of leading the worship in heaven. It's been said many at the time that all the world's troubles started with a worship leader. Uh, but this is the, the case. This is where Satan was in this privileged position of leading others uh, seemingly in the worship of God. And something happened to change Satan into what he has become and that which we know him to be but once again i just want to highlight something really significant here that in the beginning in eden there is this multitude of these beautiful precious gemstones why is that significant well acts 321 says that god is going to bring about the restoration of all things and what do we find in the new jerusalem the whole city is built upon these precious gemstones 
I think it's quite fascinating. It's a, a point that I'd missed up until yesterday. I was studying this and I suddenly saw the connection that God's original perfect creation was beautiful with these stones and the light, no doubt, was hitting these stones and just it must be dazzling. Well, that's exactly how the new Jerusalem is going to be. But Satan has this privileged position. He was in Eden, the Garden of God, we're told. And then carrying on in verse 14 of Ezekiel 28, it says, Thou art the anointed cherub that covereth. That word covereth really means is over all, is overseeing. He was the most exalted of all of the angels. And he says, And I have set thee so. This is God's appointment of Satan to this role. It says, Thou was upon the holy mountain of God. Thou hast walked up and down in the midst of the stones of fire. Now, seemingly, this is speaking of before the throne of God in heaven. And it says, Thou was perfect in all thy ways from the day that thou was created. Notice that he's a created being. But then we have one of these untils. And I've told you many a time, when you see an until in Scripture, mark it. They're all significant. So thou was perfect from the day that thou was created until iniquity was found in thee. So let's look at what we're learning from this. Satan was perfect in Eden to begin with. Again, he was part of that multitude, no doubt even leading that worship as God is creating the heavens and the earth, as the foundation of the earth is being laid. And yet, by the time we get to Genesis 3, clearly Satan had fallen by that point. So the question, of course, is then what caused him to fall? Because it was the fall of Satan that led to the fall of the angels, which obviously leads to the study that we're really getting into this morning. So, well, what was it that caused Satan to fall? Well, we're told very clearly in 1 Timothy 3, verse 6, Paul says to Timothy, speaking of those who would take up an office in the church, that they would not be a novice, lest being lifted up with pride, he fall into the condemnation of the devil. So it's very clear that the reason that Satan sinned, that he rebelled against God, was clearly down to pride. Now, another clear passage we have uh, detailing the early career of Satan is found in Isaiah 14. Picking up verse 12, how art thou fallen from heaven, O Lucifer? That, that name means light bearer, son of the morning. How art thou cut down to the ground, which did weaken the nations? For thou hast said in thine heart. Now notice what we're going to have. There's five I will statements from Satan here is I will ascend into heaven. I will exalt my throne above the stars of God. That reference, I believe, is again a reference to the angelic host. Satan was saying, I'm going to exalt my throne above all of the angels. I will sit also upon the mount of the congregation in the sides of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. And then notice the final one here. I will be like the most high. Now, the implication here, he says, uh, just looking at this, this phrase, uh, the word in the Hebrew here uh, is uh, damor, and it's a, a root that means to compare, to resemble, to be like, to consider. Again, you see those things, the, 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 the way the word is used there in scripture. Uh, Satan was saying, I want to be like God. Now, some people mistakenly think that Satan was saying, I want to be God. No, that's not what Satan was saying. He wasn't saying, I want to be God. I want to be in that privileged position of being like God. Now, why is this significant? Well, because back in Genesis 1.27, right at the end of his work of creation, we read this. 
So God created man. And now here's the shocker in his own image. Could you imagine what the angels thought when that took place? They've been watching the work of creation. They've been praising God for this work. And suddenly God creates man in his own image. And we thought in the image of God created he him, male and female created he them. So Adam was made like God. No angelic being had been made like God. But Adam was made like God. Satan was not. Adam outranked Satan in Eden. And that's clear from Hebrews 1.12. Satan was less uh, rank-wise than, than Adam was. And this seems to have driven Satan mad with envy, that he wanted that position. Satan wanted to be like Adam was, like God. Now, actually, the book of Esther is a dramatization of the events of Genesis 1 to 3. I'll try and give you a quick pricey of some of these things. Lucifer means light bearer. He was the anointed cherub. We get that from Isaiah 14 that we read a moment ago. And possibly the most powerful angel. He's responsible seemingly for the worship in heaven. In all probability, he orchestrated that worship that we read about in Job 38 when the earth was being created and the the sons of God all worshipped God for his work of creation. So how did this individual end up becoming the embodiment of evil? Well, as the angelic host watched on, as God had created, you know, the questions must have been whispered. And just, just, just consider what was going on as they were looking at God creating the land and the sea, creating all the plants, the vegetation, watching all this come into being. It must have been incredible. So the, the stars are flung out into space and the galaxies are formed. And the questions, again, amongst the angels must have been whispered. This is amazing. I wonder who it's for. What is God doing? Why is God doing this incredible thing? And who's going to be given dominion over all of this wonderful creation? Well, Satan, as the seemingly highest ranking of the angels at that point, must have thought to himself, this is for me. This is going to be mine. And that's exactly what we read in the book of Esther. You remember the situation with Haman and Mordecai. Mordecai was this Jew. Um, Haman was one of the, the king's highest ranking officials. And one night the king has a dream. This is in chapter six of the book of Esther. And the king, uh, oh, sorry, he, he wakes from his sleep because of the dream and he decides he's going to pull down some of the chronicles and read some history. Uh, it's a good thing to help you go off to sleep sometimes. Um, and as he's doing so, he realizes that Mordecai had exposed a plot to assassinate him some years before. And he asked the question, what happened to Mordecai? What kind of reward was he given? And seemingly there was no reward, no acknowledgement that Mordecai had been this one who had uncovered the plot and told the king, effectively saved the king's life. Well, at this point, early in the morning, Haman arrives at the court. He goes in to see the king, speaks to the king, and good morning, king, how are you? He says, Mordecai, I've been thinking, what, what should I do to honor somebody whom I really want to honor in a very special way. And of course, Mordecai's thought to himself is what we read there on the screen in Esther 6.6. 6, to whom would the king delight to do honor more than to myself? This is the argument that Satan has. That, well, God's creating all of this. Who could it be for except for me? This has got to be mine. Of course, in the account in Esther, Haman is humbled 
as he finds out that the king well in fact the the, the funny thing is that uh, Haman then says well what you should do is you should give him your your signet ring you should put, put him on your horse uh, your special horse and get him paraded through the city and everybody can say this is what the king does to the man in whom he delights to honor and of course Mord- uh, Haman's thinking that's going to happen to him and the king says that's a really good idea I want you to go and do that for Mordecai and of course you can imagine Haman's heart just sinks and the disdain that he had for Haman from from from, from Mordecai from that point on uh it was great already but that made it even worse well again consider what was going on with the work of creation God then in the work of creation unveiled the biggest bombshell in all of eternity mankind created in his image i don't think we can understate how incredible this is and for you and i should make us really amazed and in awe of what god has done in creating us in his image and in his likeness you see lucifer was no longer the pinnacle of god's creation and it quickly became clear that this stunning new world that god had just spent the last five days creating was going to be given to man a man was going to be given dominion over the whole earth well at that moment something happened that seemed utterly impossible it was something so catastrophic that it would later require an unimaginable price to be paid to remedy the situation and it would leave a tragic scar on the whole of eternity and the situation was that lucifer the light bearer Notice, by the way, that Lucifer was the light bearer. He wasn't the light. Jesus was the light. But Lucifer had that privilege of bearing that light. The light bearer rebelled against God. Isaiah 14, as we saw a little while ago, records that Lucifer, already overflowing with envy and hatred for the man who'd been created in God's image, said in his heart, I will ascend into heaven. I'll exalt my throne above the angels of God. I will sit also upon the mount of the congregation, the size of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds and I will be, I will be like the most high. It's defiance against God. Now, Lucifer, as we said, had not been created like the most high, but Adam had. So if he'd not been given it, he was going to take it by force. He would take the wonderful earth he thought he rightly deserved and destroy this man that God had created in the process. He wasn't going to allow man to become the light bearer. Interesting thought, isn't it? That that's exactly what you and I have become. We have become light bearers as we represent Jesus Christ, as his light shines through us. We're called to be lights in this world. Then he would be exalted. Satan would be exalted and the other angels would then worship him. Well, that was his plan. Now, Lucifer's nature now changed in an instant. And his name effectively changed to Satan, which means opponent. For now he become not God's opponent, but man's opponent. We have a really distorted view sometimes, which came through medieval uh, art and literature and so on, that kind of pits God in one corner and Satan in the other in this cosmic battle between the two. That's not, not, not true. Satan is a created being. God is the creator. No, the battle is not between God and Satan. The battle is between Satan and man. That's where the battleground is. And that's the challenge. In Esther 5.13, with all of the 
pomp and ceremony uh, that Mordecai had been accustomed so that Haman had been accustomed to with all of the privileges he had being a high ranking official he makes this statement he says yet all this avails me nothing so long as I see Mordecai the Jew sitting at the king's gate again just imagine the feeling that Satan had looking at man now in charge of this incredible earth and so that obviously leads us to this path where satan set out to deceive mankind now he takes a third of the angels now this this causes a real rift because a third of the angels seemingly also feel incensed that god has created man and man is going to be given all these things and so a third of the angels revelation 12 tells us this rebelled against god and joined with satan at that point point. and for the last six thousand years of human history satan has been hell belt hell bent on one thing and that is the destruction of man by whatever means possible just as haman was with mordecai but of course the man that he was most intent on destroying wasn't the first adam but the second adam Jesus Christ the seed because God made it clear that God was going to even after the fall redeem mankind through the seed or at least for those who would accept now this starts to set the scene for the whole of the old testament and we start to understand the need for Israel you see God pronounced judgment on Satan in Genesis 3:15 of course he's desperate to avoid that judgment in essence the whole of the account of the old testament is the story of how god engineered and ensured the safe safe arrival of the second adam the seed of the woman and of course how satan which we're told in revelation 12 is the dragon in that chapter that's how he's depicted he how he desperately tried to prevent it now just to clarify the situation we are told many places in scripture that for now the world is under the sway of the wicked one satan managed to usurp adam and claim the title to the earth for now for now it's his it's been handed over to him he stole the earth from adam he got what he he thought he wanted we're actually told in 2 corinthians chapter 4, uh, 4 verse 4 that satan for now is the god of this world and if you remember the temptation in the wilderness, Satan, in offering all the things he does to Jesus and tempting him, uh, verse 6, the devil said to him, all this power will I give thee and the glory of them, all the nations and the kingdoms of the world, um, for that is delivered unto me. That's the statement that Satan makes. Now, Jesus doesn't contest Satan's claim because it was true that for now, the kingdoms of this world have been given over to Satan again for now now just to tie this off so that we're very clear in revelation chapter 11 verse 15 we read this and the seventh angel sounded and there was a great voices in heaven saying the kingdoms of this world are become the kingdoms of our lord and of his christ and he shall reign forever and ever okay so back in revelation 5 there's a scroll that's open it's the title deed to the earth no no man is found worthy until Suddenly they realize John, as he's getting this vision in Revelation, sees Jesus. He's introduced to the one on the throne who is worthy, a lamb as he'd been slain. Jesus, of course, was a family descendant, a relative of Adam. He had this right to redeem the property that once had belonged to Adam, that Adam had lost. And this right of redemption is detailed for us in the book of Leviticus. And so Jesus now comes along as the one who can rightfully inherit. And he claims back the earth because he's worthy. He was sinless and he was also a kinsman of, the, of Adam. So he had the, the right, the legal justification to do this. Of course, he was the only one worthy to open that scroll. 
again, kinsman of Adam and legally entitled, he was worthy being an outsen. And that right of redemption I mentioned in Leviticus 25, verse 25, verse 48, and so on. And so finally, when we get to that point in Revelation, Jesus will claim back the title to the earth. He's already won it. He, he, that was done at Calvary, but he will claim back that title. In Revelation 12, we get this picture of this woman travailing, uh, getting ready to give birth. And it's obviously speaking of the seed of the woman through the centuries, uh, through the Old Testament, getting ready to give birth to the Messiah. But we're told that she was travailing in birth and pain to be delivered. In fact, the Old Testament is the story of this woman, of Israel effectively, or the, the seed of the woman, travailing in birth, waiting for the child to come. Right from the start, Satan, as I said already, was hell-bent on stopping this child coming and tried everything possible to prevent it. All of the battles in the Old Testament, all of these strange things that occur, all the the problems they had going into Canaan and, and even with Egypt and before that, it was all Satan's attempt to stop the seed of the woman coming. Now, it begins, of course, with Cain killing Abel. That was the first attempt after the fall to destroy the seed of the woman. In all probability, Satan may well have thought that Abel was indeed the promised seed. He didn't know that there was going to be another thousand, few thousand years of, of human history before we get to the real seed, the Messiah coming. But now we get back on track. And Peter adds something interesting, similar theme now to Jude. Now, speaking of these angels, we've talked about, in a sense, why Satan rebelled and obviously the angels rebelled with him. But now this statement we give him in Second Peter. For if God spared not the angels that sinned, interesting expression, but cast them down to Tartarus or hell is the way it's translated. The Greek word is Tartarus. It's a, it's a word that was used in Greek mythology to refer to the, the lowest, darkest, deepest place of hell. And delivered them into chains of darkness to be reserved unto judgment. So a very similar statement to that which Jude makes here. Let's go back into Jude and piece this together. So the angels which kept not their first estate. They, they, they clearly left that role, that position they had. They rebelled against God. And then something also is added here. But left their own habitation. What does that mean? Well, that word in the Greek is a Greek word, Ocaterian, and it refers to the body as a dwelling place for the spirit. So Jude tells us the angels who sinned left their natural body, and we'll see in a moment in verse 7, that they go after strange flesh. Now, the only other place this word is used, by the way, this Ocaterian word is used in 2 Corinthians 5 verse 2, and it speaks about us being clothed with our new body. It says, for we, in this we groan earnestly, desiring to be clothed upon with our Ocaterian, with our new body, which is from heaven. So these angels is clearly stating, we may not get it so clearly in the English, but certainly in the, in the Greek it's there, they left their natural body and took on a different form. Well, this is all very confusing. Where do we, how do we make sense of all this? Well, we get to the book of Genesis chapter six and we read, this incredible account it came to pass that when men began to multiply on the face of the earth and daughters were born unto them, that the sons of God, now that's the expression we've already seen, speaking of the angels, saw the daughters of men, that they were fair, and they took them wives of all which they chose. This is a scary, horrible situation that certain fallen angels 
decided that they were going to do this again. Understand the context. The reason is they wanted to stop the Messiah coming. And this was an attempt by Satan to infiltrate humanity, to corrupt humanity, and put an end to the possibility of a Messiah ever coming. Thus, Satan would remain where he wanted to be in control of the earth. So these angels, no doubt under the direction of Satan, do exactly what we're told here. Notice they take them wives, the, the word in the uh, Hebrew is very clearly the women. There's no question about the, the, the who's being spoken of here. Um, the expression also sons of God is B'nai Ha Elohim. And it's always used to identify a direct creation of God. I've said already of angels and the Old Testament of believers in the New Testament. But in the context here, clearly it's speaking of angels. And the Benoth Adam, again, the daughters of Adam. Uh, are the ones who ended up having these relationships with these angels. And by the way, it says that they took whom they chose. It doesn't imply necessarily that the women were complicit in this, but these angels, seemingly uh, superior in power, not necessarily in rank, but in power, uh, were able to overpower the women. And so thus we get this situation. The verse 4 says, There were Nephilim in the earth. That's the word effectively in the Hebrew. In the earth, the word is, of course, translated giants in the English. But there were Nephilim in the earth in those days. And also after that, when the sons of God came in unto the daughters of men, and they bare children to them, the same became mighty men which were of old, men of renown. So they produced this unnatural offspring. The word uh, Nephilim comes from, it means the fallen ones. It comes from Nephal, meaning to fall or to be cast down. So there were Nephilim in the earth in those days. Uh, and again, we're told that the, when the sons of God came into the, the daughters of men, so these uh, fallen ones, these, these strange hybrid beings are produced as a result. And the same became mighty men. The word in the Hebrew is hagiborim, and it just means mighty ones. Uh, the Septuagint actually translates, that's the Greek translation of the Old Testament. It translates that word as gigantes. It actually means earthborn um, because they were born on the earth. But that's where we get the word giant. So they were giants. They were physically large of stature. And of course, we know of one very famous one. We're all very familiar with the individual by the name of Goliath. And Goliath, of course, had four brothers. But actually throughout the Old Testament, there are many of these individuals that are referenced. Certainly Genesis, Numbers, Deuteronomy uh, detail a lot of this problem that had occurred. This was after the flood, but this was the reason for the flood itself. These angelic beings had left their first estate. They desired and taken women. The offspring were these hybrid beings. They were part human, part celestial, and they were indeed of abnormal physical side, size. Uh, and they, need, they were neither fully angel or fully human. Let me just ask you an interesting question to ponder. Did they have eternal spirits? Now, I'm not going to get into this in detail, but I'm going to pose this here as a thought for you to consider. We have, of course, mentioned throughout Scripture, and particularly in the New Testament and the Gospel period, demons. Where did demons come from? Demons are not angels. In fact, it's actually clear from a number of portions in the New Testament, there's a couple of statements in Acts that speak of angels as different and separate from demons. They're not one and the same. So demons clearly are not good. They're not godly. Well, that means God did not create them as such. So where did they come from? Now, it's just an interesting side study. You can have a look at this. Look at the occasions where demons are referenced and referred to in Scripture. And I would put forward the suggestion that the demons were actually the disembodied spirits of these giants. Uh, once they ended their time on earth, um, 
that they then carry on in this form as demons. So uh, I'll leave that to, to ponder and consider that. But anyway, these giants themselves become the source of much legend and much myth, which is actually translated into many, many cultures. Of course, the real purpose was the annihilation of the human race. But only Noah and his family, we're told, were perfect in their generations. It doesn't mean they were perfect without sin. It means they were genetically pure or uncontaminated. So Satan almost succeeded in destroying mankind. So the question sometimes is asked, was God unjust and unloving to send the flood? A lot of the people in the world will tell you that's not fair. It was going to genocide or even worse. You know, no, God wasn't unjust. It was an incredible act of love and mercy to preserve his special creation from this attempt of Satan to corrupt it. Remember that Psalm 119, 68 reminds us that God is good. Now, Gengarus is the same word used in Greek mythology for titans. They're creatures, according to Greek mythology, emerging from the interbreeding of the Greek gods with human beings. Uh, and genea simply means breed or kind. It's where we get the English word genetics from, by the way. Um, the interesting thing here is that you'll find in all the or almost all ancient cultures this same idea that some heavenly beings came and interbred with the, the women of the earth and produced offspring. Now, most cultures, it's just purely seen as mythology. The Bible gives us the original account of why those, myth, those myths came into being in the first place. Now, notice again, going back to Second Peter, that word, that these particular group of angels were cast down to Tartarus, again, delivered in these chains of darkness. That word Tartarus is interesting. The Greek titans which i'm sure from mythology and um, if you remember anything from history you'll know was part of their their mythology they were partly terrestrial partly celestial beings now they apparently rebelled against their father uranus which you know is so similar to the biblical account after this prolonged contest they were defeated by zeus and condemned to tartarus uh, the greek uh, titan by the way uh, in the chaldean is shitan and in the hebrew it's satan Interesting connections to all these things. Even in the Assyrian mythology, where there's this concept and this idea of these winged god-type beings coming down and having relations with the women of the earth. It pervades many of the ancient cultures. Josephus, in his uh, Antiquities of the Jews, makes this statement. Now this again, Josephus was a recognised and respected historian. He says this, many angels of God accompanied with women and begat sons that proved unjust and despisers of all that was good on account of their own strength. These men did what resembled the acts of those whom the Grecians called giants. Josephus makes that connection that the Greeks have this mythology, but actually the history is recorded in the, the Jewish or the Hebrew Bible. He then goes on and says, uh, there was till then left the race of giants who had bodies so large and countenances so entirely different from other men that they were surprising to the sight and terrible to the hearing. The bones of these men are still shown to this day. Now, that's not a statement you can make if this is just a made up story. Josephus says we've still got the bones of them. And we haven't got time this morning, but there's in incredible evidence. Um, the, the reality, the historicity of this account that we're looking at, the recorded in Genesis, um, that these giants really did pose a real problem and they did walk the earth. Now, back into our verse. And by the way, we're not going to get through many verses. We're just going to do this one in the next verse. and Then we're going to tie up in a second. But again, the angels, which kept not their first estate, they rebelled against God. They left their own habitation, their natural bodies. Jude says, God has reserved in everlasting chains under darkness unto the judgment of 
the great day. Now, there's a word there, unto. Uh, and in the Greek, it's this word ace. It means until. And it's specifically a point in time. So what it seems to be implying is that these angels have been reserved for a particular point in time. And that being during the judgment, the judgment of the great day. That is an expression that refers to the tribulation throughout scripture. So what is this saying? Well, I believe this is implying that God has for the last 5,000 years, have these angels in chains, uh, four and a half thousand years roughly, have these angels in chains waiting for a particular time that is yet to come. Well, what is he waiting for? Why have they been in chains for this period of time? Well, very quickly, in Revelation chapter 9, uh, we read that the fifth angel sounded and I saw a star fall from heaven unto the earth and to him, there you go. So it's very clear this star is a reference to an angelic being because it is to him. We're given the keys of the bottomless pit. You can't do that to an asteroid or a meteor or anything else. So this is a, clearly an individual. And this individual is given the keys to the bottomless pit. Um, and notice, uh, again, as I said, you, you know, it has to be a, a being, an angelic being of some sort. Uh, an asteroid or a meter would not have a lot of use for a key. Um, now, Dake, in his commentary, says there is no indication that this is a fallen angel. He will descend from heaven to open the abyss, liberating the creatures who will fulfill this vision. And he says he must be a holy and trusted angel to have been given the key. And he goes on, uh, if a fallen angel could liberate, um, um, for, sorry, if a fallen one could liberate all the fallen creatures that are now there, he's not the angel of the bottomless pit, for no king of demons could be trusted with such a key. So clearly God is sending an angel to release the angelic beings that are held captive in this bottomless pit. Where is the bottomless pit? Well, if you think about it, it has to be in the center of the earth. It's the only place that there's no bottom because every direction from there would be up. So seemingly what is being released are these angelic beings. The uh, bottomless pit translated simply the, the long shaft of the abyss, this, this uh, thing that goes all the way down to the earth. And it was understood by Jewish rabbis and Greek philosophers to be this place in the center of the earth where uh, departed dead had gone. But obviously the lowest part of that Tartarus in the Greek mythology, and as Peter seems to allude to, uh, is this bottom part of that. Now, lots of scriptural support to suggest that when people die, they go down into the pit, into the, the heart of the earth. Um, certainly in a spiritual sense in some way uh, I won't go through all the scriptures there but there's a number of them that give reference to this so again Peter says regarding angels who sinned prior to the flood that God had cast them down into this place and we said already the use of the word Tartarus so what it seems to be is that they have been reserved there and this is what Jude is saying for this time of judgment now in Revelation we read this in verse 2 in chapter 9 and he opened the bottomless pit and there arose smoke out of the pit as the smoke of a great furnace and the sun and the air were darkened by reason of the smoke of the pit. And there came out of the smoke locusts upon the earth and unto them was given power as the scorpions of the earth have power. Now, it's my contention that this is part of the judgments of the tribulation that God will release these scary angelic beings out into the earth as part of the judgment he's going to bring on the earth. 
Of course, that judgment that comes includes all this, uh, you know, smoke and the locusts and all these kind of things. Of course, locusts are very similar to that plague of Egypt, but these are clearly different from the things that said it's commanded that they shouldn't hurt the grass of the earth, neither any green thing or any green tree, but only those men which have not the seal of God in their foreheads, which are the 144,000. The church will be out of here by that time, thankfully. We praise God for that. Um, and to them it was given that they should not kill them, but they should torment, uh, be tormented uh, five months. And their torment as the torment of a scorpion when he strikes a man. In those days shall men seek death and shall not find it. And shall desire to die and death shall flee from them. Now, why five months? Well, five in scripture is often the number refers a reference to grace. And maybe it's just God's grace that this isn't prolonged. Um, because only God holds our lives in his hands and people will try and kill themselves and it won't work. It's going to be terrifying. The shape of the locust was like unto horses uh, prepared for battle on the heads were crowns of gold and their faces were as faces of men. And they had hair as the hair of women and their teeth were as the teeth of lions. Okay, so make no mistake, the reason we're giving so much detail is so that we don't assume that this can't be real. God is painting a very clear picture of something that is going to happen in the future. And these beings come out in, for whatever reason they come out in the form they do, um, a picture there, this was actually written by, uh, uh, drawn by a Christian artist by the name of Rodney Matthews. Um, and when I was younger, I actually had a really big picture of this on my bedroom wall. Um, I, I was just fascinated by the reality of all that is going to come upon the earth. And the world thinks of this as mythology of, of nonsense. But of course, the Bible makes it very clear that God's judgments are real and they really will come. And it's going to be terrifying for the people on the earth. We're given a few more details. They have breastplates uh, as the breastplates of iron. And the sound of their wings was the sound of chariots and many horses running to battle. And they have this uh, scorpion-like sting in their tails and they can hurt men for five months. And they have a leader over them um, whose name is Apollyon. Uh, I'll leave a quote there from J. Vernon McGee simply saying that the, the description we have uh, seems to be very, very applicable. I won't uh, take the time to read it, but it will be in the notes if you want to go back to it. Okay, so Jude now, now this is just to tie this off now to close, uh, gives this final example uh, of how God brings judgment on the disobedient. And he says, even as, okay, so what we've just looked at, even as Sodom and Gomorrah and the cities about them in like manner, giving themselves over to fornication, just as these angels had done entering into unnatural relationships. He's saying Sodom and Gomorrah did the same thing, going after strange flesh and are set forth for an example, suffering the vengeance of eternal fire. Okay, so in the same way as the angels had left that which God had provided the natural uh, situation, so Sodom and Gomorrah left that which was natural going after that which was unnatural and of course you know the situation you know the details and so i don't need to spend time going into all the details of what went on in sodom and Gomorrah. you can read of course about the situation uh in genesis um and of course you know if you remember when lot looked out across the plain he saw the the plain of jordan and it was like eden the garden of god we're told you know and this wonderful beautiful place becomes an arid torched wasteland as a result of God's judgment falling on Sodom and Gomorrah. It just shows again that God is not mocked. You see, judgment will come to those who disregard God's statutes. 
Just in closing, one verse I want to give to you from Matthew 24, because we're very familiar that Jesus said that as the days of Noah were, you know, so will it be when the Son of Man comes. He says, for as the days of Noah were before the flood, they were eating and drinking. And notice this, they were marrying and giving in marriage. Now, I noticed this the other day, it just, just struck me, the detail of what we're told there. Jesus said in the, the days of Sodom and Gomorrah, they were marrying and giving in marriage. And it's going to be the same when Jesus returns. Why is that significant? Because marrying implies the willful act of those getting married. But there's another part to this. It's not just marrying, but it's giving in marriage. That implies the approval of that act by those who are giving in marriage. We all know that the sin of Sodom and Gomorrah was the sin of homosexuality. And it's implying not just the practice. And of course, we now live at a time where marriage is possible for same sex couples. But it's not just that. It's not just that that is happening. It's the giving in marriage It's the approval of that act that really marks that time of Sodom and Gomorrah. And Jesus says it's going to be the same in the days before his return. I'll leave you to ponder those thoughts. Let's bow our hearts. Father, we thank you for these things, Lord. Some of them are frightening and scary. But Lord, the message that Jude has for us is do not think that you are a God who will not judge those who do not walk in your statutes. So Lord, help us to take this warning seriously and to realize that we have been called, that we have been chosen. That, Lord, you've told us that we should honour you with our body and with our spirits, that our bodies are indeed the temple of the Holy Spirit. And so, Lord, may we live lives worthy of that calling. And, Lord, may we reject the things of this world, the temporary pleasures of sin for a season, and seek you with all of our heart, our soul, our mind, and our strength, and to love you in that way. We ask these things this morning in Jesus' name. Amen.